This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Three great words. Free fries Friday. Especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through 123124. Excludes tax must update rewards. Hello and welcome to the BBC Good Food Podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. Hello, I'm Orlando Murren and I'm hosting the BBC Good Food podcast with Tom Kerridge. Today we have as our guest Chet Sharma from Bibi, the restaurant. Will you tell us a bit about Bibi, please, Chet? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for for having me on. Um, Bibi is a modern Indian restaurant that we've opened back in September in Mayfair. The word Bibi actually means lady of the house. Uh, So it's very much an homage to my grandmothers, who I think were the first people who taught me how to to cook and sort of really respect sort of the seasonal side of Indian cooking. Um, Both of them grew up on farms, so we definitely wanted to bring a lot of that into what we do at the restaurant. We've got this beautiful chef's chef's table there, uh, as well as twenty other seats. So it's um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a nice little restaurant that that is uh, going great guns right now. And tell me a bit about the menu because it's a, quite an unusual menu. Yes, yeah, so it's it's very intentionally quite unusual. So we don't have any of the sort of what people associate with Indian food in terms of the curry house classics or anything like that. But we definitely have nods to that in the menu. It is a daily or weekly changing menu. We print the menus daily in-house. Uh, so we, we change dishes all the time, depending on what's available uh, on the market. Um, there's not really a specific region of India that we focus on. It's really sort of spread across the, well, the entire subcontinent that includes Pakistan, Sri Lanka, um, and Bangladesh as well. So we take dishes and inspiration from different pockets and apply them to great British produce. What really fascinates me looking through the menu is the, uh, the the British ingredients nuzzling with the Indian cooking styles, and it makes for rather wonderful sounding dishes. Well, thank you. I think we're we're, we're very very spoilt in this country. I mean, I spent most of my career working in restaurants like 
Longloom, the Ledbury, uh, Moore Hall, sort of really high-end British, British sort of modern European restaurants, uh, really focusing on on the quality of product. And we're so spoilt with what we have here. It'd be a shame to to not really sort of maximise that with our with our restaurant. Um, and you've mentioned your career. Um, I think that someone in this room may have had a part in your career, but he doesn't know it yet. <laughs> yeah. So uh, back in 2011, I spent a week working at the or oh, staging, staging at the Hand and Flowers. Wow, 2011. So, uh, yeah, that's it. That was probably we were still a one-star space then. I think. I think I, I joined. Oh, well, I was there shortly after the second star. Just as it got it in the 2011 guide. Okay, oh, amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, brilliant. Oh, amazing. And you, you mentioned your your background there and the places that you worked. I mean, they're incredible restaurants run by brilliant, brilliant chefs with Simon Rogan and and Mark that that uh, at Moore Hall. They've got they use such like modern thinking, modern techniques, and then you've got Brett. But the Lebre who's cooking just some of the I mean it's some of the bo- the best British food you'll ever come across I think I mean being cooked by an Australian but <laughs> you know, he re- so embraces the seasons and the food that that the countryside provides with so have you taken all those sort of influences to try and help you create your dishes absolutely and I'm I'm uh, I'm constantly on the phone to Brett trying to get him to sell me some of his venison as well yeah. um, <laughs> so he has he has you know he has his own sort of herd um, I in Aino has his own honey that he gets from there as well so I know now that the Ledbury's reopened there's less chance of me getting that um, yeah, he he's getting nothing me... there like he's keeping, <laughs> he'll be keeping that to himself um, he is, he's promised me some, some he's got some piglets as well so he's promised me some of that uh, eventually but we'll see when that comes through and those modern cooking techniques that Simon uses or, or Mark uses that you know that are not just about straight braising or roasting meats kind of very similar to what we would do at the hand of flowers that those modern techniques do you do you use those in your restaurant i mean yeah yes and no so the way that the menu works at the restaurant is that um probably 70 percent of the the the, the food we serve is, is cooked over charcoal. Um, so we have this huge siguri, which is uh, basically a rabata grill in Hindi um, with lots of wheels and pulleys so you can completely control the, the temperature. Uh, we don't necessarily sort of sous vide or use any of those ultra-modern techniques on proteins, but we, we do use, you know, I'd like to think, relatively cutting-edge techniques across the board. Um, when I was with Simon, I was his director of R&D, so definitely focusing in on you know development of techniques as well. So so yeah, we we definitely use bits and pieces of that. It's quite interesting you say that you cook so much on coals because that is the new modern cooking technique, isn't it? If you look at, uh, I mean, so many of the top restaurants that are opening now it is much more going back to the kind of flavors that are created from coals, but it's the most basic of cookery. However, the technique is so specific and so sharp and, and trying to understand. It's very much in touch with kind of like Mother Nature and what's going on. You're in touch, really in control with that fire rather than just turning an oven on and sit, setting it on 185 degrees and fan on number four. Do you know what I mean? It's kind of, there's much more touch, feel that sensual part of cooking. I mean, that's such an exciting thing, but it does lead to variables in the way that things are cooked. How do you cope with that as a restaurant? Um, with great difficulty, yeah. I think this is part of it. I think the biggest challenge for us was getting the first of all, you know, we, we want to try and be as sustainable as possible. So finding the right source of, of heat in terms of the, the wood that we use to make charcoal, etc. Um, but also the burning profile that it gives you. And so we've actually ended up with a blend of woods that we use. Um, so that that helps a lot because it means that, you know, whether you're dining at 530 or, you know, we're open till 
uh, for the last booking at 10.30. If you're, you're in at 11.30 getting your, your grilled items, we need to make sure that fire is consistent throughout. So that 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 is the biggest challenge, I think, in what we're doing at the moment. Um, but yeah, just training, using probes as well. I think, you know, there's no, the whole touch and feel thing, the way that, you know, especially earlier in my career, we were cooking, I mean, I've been cooking 17 years now. Uh, it was a lot of sort of guesswork um, at times, but, but you know, using, you know, being able to utilize those probes and those, those things like that. Uh, definitely helps uh, build a, a more consistent product. Are they like infrared thermometers that you're using, or the digital probes that actually go into the meat? So for the for the meat and the, for the protein, we use a, a probe that goes inside. Yeah. Um, the infrared ones we actually use. We have uh, um, flat plates that we cook all of our breads on. Um, so we use the infrared probes for that as well. And do you have a person who looks after the fire, who's specifically in charge of kind of riddling the coals and whatever you do? How, whatever. How do you keep keep the the fire going i'm i this is beyond I my imagination <laughs> <laughs> i'm kind of i'm kind of imagining someone like tweaking coals like a like a little log fire what in front of the television but yeah it, is it a great big a great big area of coal yeah so it's um i don't I, i'm actually not i'm not that good with imperial measures but it's about two meters wide the grill so it's a it's a it's a it's a big old grill um well it's, what is that about six Six foot, six and a half foot. Meters yeah, are fine. Meters yeah. are fine. So, yeah. Um, so it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big old grill. So it does take the expertise of essentially one person is just controlling the, the coal and well, tweaking the and moving and little yeah. red bits of coal to the side and putting a black one in, in certain. And yeah, and, 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 and getting rid of the ash. Yes, and trying to have sort of hot zones and cooler zones so that, you know, some, some items are, are essentially not necessarily cooked over coal, but they're, they're sort of long smoked. Um, so there's there's a lot of technique in, in getting that that element right. Um, and then you'll also see quite often someone bust out a plastic fan just to uh, keep all the ash off the coal as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a then bit it of a Then it must process. go everywhere. It must go in everyone's faces. Or do you have an extractor that removes this ash? <laughs> I'm, I need to go and see this for myself. I'm finding it very... Doesn't it sound exciting? <laughs> yeah, but but that like, beautiful understanding of cookery, for me, that's that, that it's amazing. It's taking everything back to those kind of like base level understanding of cavemen setting fire to something and having a go at cooking and then the way that that's now developed to, to be in such a a, a, pre, a precise and a direct approach to cookery that drives flavor you're looking at smokiness you're looking at heat you're looking at char you're looking at all of those sort of things that f- flavor profiles that make food so so exciting and you know what an exciting style of restaurant i mean spicing taken from from whether it's pakistan sri lanka or india flavors that are are, are driven by heritage and history, grandmother's recipes and whatever, but then brought into British, um, using British produce. I mean, and cooked on coals. This has got to be the most exciting restaurant in the country. <laughs> um, Chet, can you tell us about a couple of your favourite dishes? So I, I'm, I'm always really careful not to be drawn into sort of signature dishes because we do, we are very ruthless with our, with our produce. If it's not good enough, it doesn't go on the menu. Um, a couple of items that are more or less always on the menu. So we, we have um, something called the, what we call our Orkney scallop nimbu bunny. So nimbu bunny is uh, essentially an Indian lemonade and we make um, uh, a, a ceviche type dish. 
using great Orkney scallops. So we shuck them just before service, uh, carve them into um, tiny little bite-sized pieces, dress them in this Indian lemonade. And I mean, there is a bit more chefiness and technique, but I don't want to bore anyone with too much of that. Um, so that's... Oh, you don't want to give away the secrets more like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a bit of both. Um, no, there's... Uh, and, and right now we're, we're very lucky that we've got some very good blood orange in as well. Um, you know, this is citrus season. So it's nice to not just use sort of heritage Indian citrus, but we'll also you know, fold in a bit more European when, when it's in, in season and when it's at, at its very best as well. Um, so that's one of the dishes. The Shamraji is Lahori chicken. So Shamraji is not me. I have to tell everybody this. It is my, that was my grandfather's name. Everyone knew him as Shamraji, including his wife. Um, so he grew up in pre-partition Lahore. And you could never get him to talk about uh, about the Pakistani side of the, of the country um, at any point. The only thing he'd ever discuss was food. So he'd talk about the kebab vendors. So this isn't necessarily his recipe, but it's a dish inspired by stories that he would tell about the smells and the flavors when he'd walk through the streets of Lahore and see these people grilling over over tamarind wood normally more than anything else. Um, so that dish is, again, normally on the menu. And then finally, we have the galoti kebab right now. Today, it's lamb belly that we use in there, but it changes. You know, it's been venison in the in the past. We use different bits and pieces. Um and essentially, the Glorti Kebab, the story goes that it was made for an emperor, and Nawab, who lost all his teeth in his 50s, but loved the flavor of meat. So he asked his cooks, and I mean, back then, you know, we're not talking about a brigade of eight or nine chefs. They used to have thousands of cooks. Um, and they basically beat this meat into submission. Uh, so it became almost pate-like in texture. Um, so it's quite a complex dish. It takes a lot of time and a lot of, uh, a lot of sort of gadgetry to, to get right. And, you know, we're getting better at it every day. Uh, it's also got over 60 spices in it, so it's incredibly complex. Um, but that's, there's a version of that that's on the menu most times. And part of that is... Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You know, the leaning towards sustainability. So, for example, we've got lamb chops on the menu. So we'll buy in whole saddles, break them down. We take the belly off. Um, we'll take part of the saddle for the lean meat. And then we'll basically make this galotti kebab with that. And then you've got your prime cut as the, the chops as well. Sounds amazing. I was I, I was more blown away by the idea there's 60 spices in there. 63. 63 spices. I mean, that's just incredible. I mean, the, the layers, the understanding. And now, is that a recipe that you've developed or is that the one that's been handed down? So there's this really famous place in Lucknow um, called Tunde Kebab. And you ask anybody in India, where's the best kebab in, in, in the country? And they'll probably tell you it's Tunde uh, if, if, if they're, they're well-traveled. Um they have 101 spices. So I sat there with my notebook trying to pick out every spice that they had. And wow. then I got, to, I got to 63 and I was like, okay, I'm done now. Yeah, that's, um, that's enough. That's yeah. enough. The other 37 doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> we're, 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 we're almost there. But that, yeah, I mean, that's still a long way to go. That's not even two thirds. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we've, we've, uh, we've, like I say, we've got time to go. We're four months old, so we've got plenty of uh, room for growth. And then did you then have to play around with the balance? The balance of spicing must be very, very... Um, 
um, difficult to try and get right that kind of blend, that understanding not too not too hot in terms of spice, but getting that right level and not overpowering and and not and letting the meat as well, because like, obviously you want the produce to speak for itself as well. Yeah, absolutely. So that that's um, I think one of the biggest challenges we we have, and actually one of the nice things about naming the restaurant. BB after grandmothers was that we always had this challenge that if an Indian grandmother walks into the dining room, will she recognize the food as innately Indian? I mean, it doesn't look Indian. I'll admit that from the beginning. Um, but does it does it taste? Does it give her the just nostalgic feeling? Things like the nimbupani. We don't eat raw scallops in India, but, but everyone should recognize that flavor. Um, but at the same time, with having that as your central focus, how do you stop masking the quality of the product underneath? Because at that point, you know, why why use the very best the most expensive produce you can find if you're just going to mask it with other things um and it's it's actually been really promising that in these these few months uh guests from india are able to not only enjoy the flavors of the the spicing and and the balance there um but also take away uh, a lot about the quality of the product as well so hopefully we're we're finding that balance well at the moment have your grandmothers been to the restaurant uh, sadly, they both passed away. So, so no, they haven't. Um, it's, it's so they're with us in spirit. They're with us in spirit. So, yeah. And what would they, that apart from being enormously proud of you, they would recognise the, the the dishes as as having come from from their their origin story. Absolutely, I think so. I mean, you know, even the the wheat that we source for the flatbread um, is the same strain of heritage wheat that, that my grandmother's farm used to grow in Haryana. So it's it's uh, nice that we've been able to track that down and bring that through. I don't think they'd forgive me for serving beef in the restaurant um, because they were both strict vegetarians to start with, but beef would have definitely been a big, big no-no. <laughs> and do you travel much in India to go and source ingredients? Absolutely. So I've, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate um, that, that my mother works for a, for an airline, um, so we travelled a lot through India as as kids, and then um, getting a bigger passion for for Indian food, I, I started travelling through different cities by myself as well, independently. Um, just before opening the restaurant, fortunately, we'd we'd planned the opening for 2020. So in 2019, before you know. What happened happened. Yeah. Uh, I spent about uh, about six months in total in India, traveling around, just just eating, meeting farmers, uh, hearing their stories, and that's definitely had a big impact on the way that we source produce as well. I love the map on your on your menu that shows where everything's come from. It's so it was like eye opening to me, and I'm sure there's a lot more that you could put on that map. Well, yeah, that maps from 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 day one. Um, we've definitely grown. The, the produce list since then, but I'm not actually very good at graphic design, so I haven't been able to put it on the back of the menu yet. But we'll get somebody on that soon. What was the point if you wanted to become a chef? What was the thing that made you feel that, for me, it was when I walked into, I basically I walked into a kitchen because I needed a job, so I started washing up. And it was the energy of the space. And I just thought, wow, this is incredible. It wasn't produce-led for me. I, I, wasn't, I, did, I didn't travel India looking at spices and, and, and seeing food. I just went in there and needed money and went, this is incredible. What was the point for you that you thought, I, you know what, being a chef is where I want to be? So I think there's a, a couple of things in this. So one is I grew up in a Punjabi household um, in, in Berkshire, and it was not uncommon on a weekend. I mean, there's only four of us in the house, but there would be 
40, 50 people there over a weekend. So there was always free-flowing food. Um, hospitality is a huge part of our culture. I think that's sort of been embedded at a very, very young age. So that was definitely part of it. Um, you know, we are definitely a, a, a culture as well that coming from an agricultural background, when you're eating breakfast, you're talking about lunch. When you're eating lunch, you're talking about dinner. Um, so that was always, always there as well. And then the other part was, um, so... I just, I mean, so that was where my initial love of food came from, as well as the fact that I grew up with these amazing cooks around me. Uh, but when I was in the process of studying, so I, I was doing a PhD at the time, and my supervisor was sat in his office at, at sort of 7 p.m. on a Sunday night. I was writing my thesis, so it makes sense to be there on a Sunday night at that time. This guy is hugely successful, you know, young professor. Um, has a young family at home, but he's there writing grant applications. And, and it was a bit of a light bulb moment that if you're ever going to be good at anything or successful at anything, not that I'm saying I'm either of those things yet, you have to put the hours in and you've got to put the work in. And, and the only place where I've ever felt like doing that was in kitchens. Um, and, you know, I know it's uh, it's changing for the better now where, you know, you don't have to work 70, 80 hour weeks or anything like that anymore as much anyway. Um, but... Yeah, no, it was the only place where I could ever imagine doing that that kind of graft as well. It's, it's a really good point because people always pick up on hospitality being having long hours and slightly unsociable. Well, I mean, they're always going to be slightly unsociable if you run a normal nine to five life because you go out in the evening. So as chefs, and, you know, the busiest times are weekends. So if you see it as unsociable, you're always working the evenings, you're always working weekends. However, your social life is very different. But the point that you pick up on there, I think, is is so, so true that it doesn't matter what walk of life or what career you choose or wherever it, you, you decide that your life's going to take you, the point of hard work, it's achieving something in a professional sense you're not going to do anything and get to the top or be very, very good at what you do by just doing a 40-hour week and then going home and having other things to go. You have to commit to a a a life, a profession, a job. And it's so, so true. And, and hospitality, the best thing about the hospitality industry for me, I mean, we're all in it and we're surrounded by food, that it's so embracing. It's so, it's such a culturally diverse, it has, you know, it has, it doesn't matter what background you come from, whether it, it, your sexuality, your economic background your education your you know if you've got that desire and that passion to to drive forward and work hard in an industry that's so embracing that you can then travel and see so many things it's an incredibly inspiring and fantastic industry to be in well i used to always joke around with a lot of my friends went into finance and different different walks of life and i used to joke around that they may may make more money than me but at the same time I don't have any time to spend it. And whenever I go out, I go out with chefs and we go to restaurants that we know the yeah. owners of and whatever. And, and you're always looked after in that sense as well. Yeah. So actually, um, I think the the overall balance of the, the quality of life, especially now for a young chef coming into the, the industry, is, is, is actually a lot better than it's ever been. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's amazing the way that uh, the industry is changing. I mean, it, it's fraught with all sorts of nightmares as as owners of businesses in terms of, you know, there is a staff shortage. There is how do you make it all work? The cost of everything is obviously going to go up because, you know, costs are going up. And, you know, to have more staff to give them more time off means that you have to have a bigger brigade, which in turn is more cost. But I do think the perception for people who go and eat out and particularly people who are, are foodie knowledgeable people who are listening to this podcast for example they know that now it's not just about the cost of the piece of food you know it, that piece of beef that you talk about yes you could buy a piece of beef from the same the, the same kind of cut piece of beef from a supermarket that's fine 
but I get it. It's not the cost of the piece of the actual food. It's the cost of the people delivering that food in the environment you're in. Then that's the thing that that's where the value of food becomes now. That more and more people are realizing that there's it much. It's, there's much more to it. There's much more to it from the reservation person that's picked up the phone when you've rang, from the person that says hello, from the waiting staff, for the people that are cleaning your plates, for the people, the chefs that are cooking, from the guy that's moving the coal about. I mean, everyone's got to be paid for. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, you know, coming out of the pandemic now, I think people are very grateful that somebody else is washing their dishes for them as well. A hundred percent. Yes, a bit more grateful than they were before, probably. Now, I want to talk specifically about rice, Chet, which is um, something that I think you have strong views about. I mean, rice is rice is delicious, and it's, it's an important staple for, what, a third of the world? Um and so we shouldn't underplay its importance as well as a as a sort of commodity grain. What we want to do with the restaurant, so you know, like I say, we're we're in Mayfair. We're um, we're not we're not a cheap restaurant. I'll admit as much. Um, yeah, I think fair value for what we do. But we have a platform where we can actually talk about things like why why is every restaurant using one variety of rice? Um, so it's the Pusa 1487 Basmati rice that everybody uses, and it's this hybrid rice which is. It, look, it's great. It looks great. It smells great. You know, it's long grain, pearly white, beautiful rice. It's not very good for the environment, though. And one of the things that, you know, if we're fo- focusing on sustainability and actually paying fair wages, not just to our team, but to our farmers, we need to look at something that is um, a bit more sort of heritage driven as well. So the big issue with rice at the moment, a couple of years ago, or about 2005, I think, the change came in in India. You weren't allowed to plant rice in the north of India outside the monsoon season because they were using too much water to do it. Now, what that means is the monsoon comes in sort of June, July, August, somewhere in that window. So you're, you're planting that at that time. By the time you're actually taking your rice crop, it's around October, November that you're taking that rice crop. All of the, 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 the chaff, all of the stems, all of the husk, everything that's left over after you polish your rice down. And then, by the way, you've got to sit on basmati for at least two years, um, ideally five years. So you've got to lock in the prices for that really, really early on. Um, so that's why it's always gone down the sort of commodity trading route. All of the waste product that comes off initially, that's now just being burnt. So traditionally, that would have been mulched down, and then you've got compost, which you then use for your next crop rotation, which would have most commonly been wheat. So you've, you've harvested in October, you've burnt in October, and you've planted your wheat in November. Now, the biggest problem with that is sailing in the Himalayan range, all of the, the, cold, the cold front that comes down from um, the Himalayan range pushes all of that pollution down into Delhi. Um, now, you know, Delhi smog problems are pretty well documented pushing, you know, however much extra carbon monoxide down into that that environment is not going to be good for that city. And you, you're starting to see it throughout the north of India. You look at the Taj Mahal. I mean, I went there first in 2000 and probably 2004 and went back in 2015. And it looks like a completely different place. Um, it looks like, you know, what you'd imagine as a smoker's mouth who's, who's had, you know, 20 cigarettes a day for the last 20 years looks like now compared to the pearly white it used to be. So that's all down to the pollution being caused um, by agriculture. So I couldn't, with our restaurants, support that kind of practice. Um, So what we look for is a more naturally grown sort of minimum intervention, using a wine term, um, type rice. So we always have a a seasonal rice variety that changes, and that's always a fresh rice. So it's something that isn't aged for, you know, longer than sort of a month or so. Um, So you don't get... 
uh, the same looking product as a basmati. Uh, so we've avoided that variety entirely. Right now, we've got something called Sona Masuri, uh, which comes from the sort of central belt of India. Uh, it's, a, it's definitely a lot less water intensive to grow that as well. And then one of our, I guess, quote unquote, signature dishes, uh, we have the Kaima Yakni Palau. Now, Kaima is a, a variety that comes from Wayanad in Kerala. Um, and it comes from the same sort of place that you'd get uh, peppercorns, cloves, uh, a lot of spices. Um, and it's grown in what are known in India as hill stations. So they're, they're, they're elevated. Essentially, it means that the, the amount of water that falls there is a lot higher than other parts. And so you get you don't have to water your rice. And everyone knows that rice needs to grow in paddies. So by using this kind of rice, we're hopefully contributing less to the the sort of carbon emission um, than you would if you used a basmati. I mean, it's great that you can lead the way in this. How can you imagine consumers following in your footsteps? Are you suggesting that they actually avoid basmati rice to and and use some and what would you suggest instead? The thing is, so when I if I cook a biryani at home, which is not very often, but it's my wife's favourite dish, so it does get cooked from time to time. I will I will use a high quality basmati rice. Um, I'll try and source it from the best place possible, which is there's a, a a town called Deradin, which they, where they still use sort of ancient practices, um, and they don't have to worry as much about the wheat crop either. Um, so you can get good basmati, but we almost wanted to take this as our little soapbox opportunity to say, actually, there's great rice. There's 128,000 varieties of rice in India. So, you know, the fact that everyone uses one, I think, is um, it's kind of missing a trick. Where can you find these other varieties to buy? So, I mean, we're very, very lucky in London. Um, you've got it, sort of South Asian populations in places like Croydon, in Southall, Hounslow. You know, you go to any of these sort of ethnic stores and you, you can find other varieties of rice quite easily. And you would ask, if you didn't, if, if you were like me and you didn't really know what to ask for, you would ask, I would say, what other varieties of rice have you got for me? Show me what you've got. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 ask for some explanations. Would they be able to explain? Or w- I'm just a bit worried that I'm I'm adrift. I know now not to. I'm I'm now worried about basmati, but I'd like to know what to what I can do instead. Yeah, so there's there's plenty of reading material um, out there as well. If 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 you're so inclined to to become more educated on the subject, um, I just think the, the thing is like like anything, the more you rotate through different crops and try different, you know. Also, you know, let's let's avoiding rice for a minute. There's there's great things like finger millet, so ragi in 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 Hindi, um, sorghum. We use barley. We use all sorts of other grains that we also cook in similar ways to rice. So there are there are alternatives out there um, instead of just always using basmati. That's not to say don't use basmati. It's obviously a great rice as well. Um, but there just are other other solutions out there. Well, thank you very much indeed for explaining that to us. That was complete out of the blue news to me. How about you, Tom? Yeah, and I, I find it amazing. It is that go-to. Everyone just picks up basmati rice if you're going to cook something, isn't it? If you're doing any rice dish at home, that's the first rice you pick up. It's the one that everybody knows and recognises. But to know that there's so many different, over 100,000. 128,000. I mean, varieties of rice. It's just incredible, isn't it? You, you just never, you know... You you just never see that sort of variety in supermarkets. You never see. And the reason we don't see, is there a price difference? Is there a flavor difference? Is there a, what is the differences? So, I mean, Basmati is still the most prized rice in India, for sure, um, and has been since, you know, pre-British Raj. And a lot, a lot of that is to do with um, a lot of that style of rice came from places like Iran and Afghanistan when you had the Mughals and you had the Persians in India as well. So they they embedded that very early on. It's like, this is the 
this is the rice the king eats, so therefore this is the best rice. Right. The shorter grain, sort of more starchy rices that you find in places like Thailand. So a lot of those varieties we also have in India. Um, but they're just, they're, they're seen as a very, very different product. And it's funny because you go to the south of India and they don't eat basmati at all. Right. Um, so they'll eat all the short grain stuff. Um, and they'll have, you know, matta rice and their red rice and, and, and much healthier varieties of rice as well that are not dehulled as much. Why basmati became... Um, the, the sort of premium grain, I guess, here for rice is is, is going to be to do with like the colonial link. So, you know, when the British went over and the Maharajas were eating basmati, obviously that's what the British would want to eat as well. So they would have brought that that grain back, back with them as well. I love the idea that there's so, there's so much. This is the best thing about food, that there's so much to, to discover. Like it's a never ending journey and voyage of, of food, food ideas, different flavors, different uh, history. And this is like history of food is just phenomenal. And it doesn't matter. I mean, we, we're just touching, just touching on a small bit of rice in India. I mean, the world is just so vast and it was so many things that you can learn. There's so many. Well, here's, here's, a, here's a really crazy one for you. So everybody thinks of, you know, okay, I think most people now know chicken tikka masala is not an Indian dish. Yeah. <laughs> but we didn't eat chicken in India before the British. Real, I mean, we'd eat like wild fowl and things like that, but we wouldn't, we wouldn't, we didn't domesticate and grow uh, chickens for, for protein at any point. And the British came and said, well, actually, we need soldiers and we need strong people. So eat more protein, stop eating lentils, eat more chicken. And that's how now all of a sudden chickens become the favorite meat in India. Um, but, but even as recently as my, when my mum was growing up there, it was always mutton, and mutton in India is goat meat. Oh, uh, right, okay. Yeah. So, so, yeah, I know it's a confusing thing, but uh, <laughs> looking at me slightly confusing. Trust me, I've, I went through this as well at one point. Yeah, um, yeah so, so mutton is, uh, is goat meat, in India, and that was the most popular meat. And it's only you know, the last 100, 120 years that chicken's actually even been something that people farm in India in, in any great quantity. Chet, we could talk to you all day, but you've got a restaurant to go and run. <laughs> so can I thank you very much indeed for being a, an absolutely fascinating guest. I've learned so much, Tom. I mean, it's been incredible, and it? I mean, for, for us, it's just an eye-opener, and it's a, it's a wonderful insight into a, an amazing world of food and flavours, and what an exciting restaurant, and, you know, newly opened, and, you know, driving through the pandemic, but fu fully booked now, and uh, arguably the hardest place to get a, a seat in town. <laughs> Fantastic news. So thank you so much, Chet. And um, well, I want to go and look at those coals and I want to taste the 63 spice dish as well to see if, how, many of the, how many of them I can identify. Yeah. <laughs> thank you very much. Uh, thank you for having me on. Thanks for listening to the BBC Good Food podcast with me, Tom Kerridge. For more brilliant cooking advice, don't miss the quick bonus recipe episode. Let's cook together. See you next time.